Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Rebecca Turkington, and I'm joined today by Susan Markham to discuss her new book, co-authored with Stephanie Foster, Feminist Foreign Policy in Theory and in Practice, an Introduction, published this fall by Rutledge. Susan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I can't wait to talk more about this book. Thank you for having me. So Susan and Stephanie have both worked in the global gender policy world for decades, um, and I hesitate to even start reading your bios because they are so extensive. But um, very briefly, Susan is currently working on Women, Peace, and Security with the Halifax Forum. She was previously a co-founder of Smash Strategies, served as the Senior Coordinator for Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment at USAID during the Obama administration and was director of women's political participation at the National Democratic Institute, where, full disclosure, I was lucky to work for her when I was a bright-eyed 21-year-old. So, Susan, in this book, you and Stephanie turn all of that policy expertise to the topic of feminist foreign policy. And I found in talking to people about feminist foreign policy, it can be kind of confusing for outsiders because there's both a really robust theoretical debate, debate around what this means. And at the same time, there's more and more countries who are announcing their adoption of a feminist foreign policy. So it's constantly evolving in practice. So I'm really delighted to see a volume like this because you do such a great job in detangling some of those things and really explaining to the layperson what feminist foreign policy is and why it matters. So to start with, I just want to ask you to talk a little bit more about your professional background and its influence on this book. I mean, you've traveled to more than 50 countries working on gender equality. How did that shape your thinking on feminist foreign policy? Well, it really helped me understand. I mean, that's the great thing about working in international development and democracy issues is that you're constantly trying to figure out what you've learned on the global scale that would work for this particular instance. Because countries are not the same, they can be right next door, they can have the same political system, but really the dynamics that are going on there. And so thinking both globally about what's working, what isn't working, and how it works for different governments. And so I think feminist foreign policy 
gives that flexibility to think about how you want to impact your government, how civil society is going to work with government. I should also say, before I was at NDI, I worked in U.S. politics, and I've lived in D.C. for a long time. And so this interplay between policy, politics, and government has also been something that's swirled around. I've gone back and forth, and I'm constantly trying to think about how to advocate both internally in organizations and externally from civil society. So they've all kind of come together. And then most recently, I've really tried to focus on talking to people who don't already agree with me. I love being in the gender space and talking to other members of civil society, but when everyone's nodding their head, yes, I am in the wrong room. And so my current position at HFX has really allowed me to speak to members um, of ministries of defense and foreign affairs who might have heard of it over here, but aren't really sure kind of what feminist foreign policy means for them. So why a book? Why do you think a book like this is needed in this moment? Well, Sweden announced their feminist foreign policy back in 2014. And since then, 15 countries have announced that they are doing some sort of feminist foreign trade, development, policy, that sort of thing. Um, And it's varied very much from just announcing it to actually putting out action plans and reports and that sort of thing. So it's becoming more and more part of a conversation. And people just want to know, like, well, what is it? And so we tried to put in this book what various governments and civil society organizations have said all in one place. So instead of a paper here or going on the internet and searching, it's really kind of a short primer for the non-expert um, to figure out where it came from and, and what it means. So this is probably an unfair question since you've just said that there's not one single definition <laughs> of feminist foreign policy. But as we start talking about it, um, how would you define it in one to two sentences? Well, there are certain principles that underlie most of the people or governments that talk about feminist foreign policy. One is that the that we're working towards gender equality. Gender equality is both a goal of the policy and a process towards getting towards gender equality. The definition of security is broadened. You know, as Don Steinberg would say, it's not just men with guns talking to other men with guns about men and guns. It's talking about food security and energy and climate change. So the idea of security is broadened. Um, another one is that more bringing in more diverse forces. So obviously, we want to increase the number of women engaged in foreign policy, but it's also bringing in people who are impacted. So it's not just us sitting over here in the North or West discussing foreign policy, but really engaging with civil society and other members of countries that are going to be impacted by that. And then the last, which is related, is addressing um, historic imbalances. So you're resizing defense versus democracy and diplomacy and development, but you're also trying to rebalance colonization and other relationships between countries. Well, before we jump into each of those things in turn and go through some of the chapters, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the process of writing this book. Um, Who were you consulting? What kind of sources did you draw on? What ended up being most helpful to you? Well, we actually started this process. We didn't know we were writing a book, but we were just working on this idea of feminist foreign policy. And we actually did a set of interviews of activists in D.C., some who were working on U.N. Security Council Resolution 1325 on women, peace and security, and others who were working on feminist foreign policy. 
And what we found is that there were maybe two people who overlapped. They were such different groups of people. And so we wondered why. And so we kind of worked our way from those two sides to the middle. You know, what did people agree on? So we talked to a lot of discussion with with peers and colleagues. And then we collected government reports for those who had implemented it, obviously a lot of civil society materials that had been written on, and we went and talked to academics and read a lot of academic literature. I mean, as you might know or guess, there's a huge difference between the theoretical academic and how it's actually done. And so trying to bring um, those together and try to synthesize them in a way, um, we just reached broadly and then tried to find those um, those threads that wound, wound them wake themselves through the materials. So building on what you just said about this divide between the feminist foreign policy community and the quote-unquote 1325 community, I'm interested in how much of feminist foreign policy is something new and how much of it is building off of frameworks that already exist, like Security Council Resolution 1325 or other sorts of gender equality policies. Well, I do think that it builds on the shoulders, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. Obviously, the international work that came out of Beijing, the Beijing platform and 1325 is key to this. But I think the fundamental difference is that feminist foreign policy is really intent on changing structures and institutions. Whereas 1325, we were trying to get into peace processes and be a part of systems that already existed. I think fundamentally um, looking towards gender equality, broadening security and changing the institutions that help implement those things is key to it. Of course, that's also of attention in it, because some would argue that feminist foreign policy would never fit into the institution. You can't do feminist foreign policy in the most patriarchal organizations that exist, which are governments. So there is that tension between do you work within the system to change it, or do you stand outside and really try to advocate outside? But I think the the use of the word feminist really is trying to position it as something that's bigger than the WPS agenda because you're changing um, institutions, government institutions. Can I push you a little bit more on that tension? Because I think that's something that's really interesting in feminist foreign policy. Where did you see people who, um, I don't know, were hesitant to work with governments? Which groups were more willing to work with governments? How did sort of the more academic, the more advocacy, the more policy-based communities work together? Um, Can you talk about how those tensions sort of play out among the different groups that you spoke with? Well, they continue to play out. Even um, I was part of a, I'm part of a group called the U.S. Coalition for a feminist foreign policy. So we're working on the US, which obviously that would be such a game changer because they play such an outsized role in foreign policy. But even within our coalition, there is this tension between fighting for more funds. So working within the budget system, trying to get more gender advisors at USAID, state and defense, and other people who are like, okay, That's so day to day. Let's take a step back. Let's think blue sky. If we really could do this, what would the U.S. government do differently? And so it's not a tension that like, oh, we solved it. It's an ongoing everyday conversation. Even um, up at the U.N. last week, two weeks ago, during UNGA, there were both civil society meetings and government meetings on feminist foreign policy. That's awesome. But I have to tell you, 
the definition between civil society and governments and what they consider feminist foreign policy is very different. There's still a gulf in between there. So within the feminist community and between governments and civil society, we continue to try to figure it out. The important thing is that the conversation continues and we continue to to advocate and push for governments to do better. And more and more people are joining those governments and thinking, you know, I might not be able to, you know, have a revolution in my government, but what things can I do to move us in that direction? And more and more are, you know, joining that fight. Let's talk a little bit more about that landscape of governments today. Um, Can you just briefly talk about where feminist foreign policy has been adopted and what it has looked like in some of those different places? Well, it's now becoming much more global. For a while, it was kind of focused with Sweden and Norway and, you know, countries there. But now Mexico, Colombia, Argentina um, have, have adopted it. So it looks different in many different places. I mean, Canada has probably done the best on funding it, but they haven't officially adopted feminist foreign policy. It's more of a development policy. You know, Sweden was the first. They did it for the longest, but it has since been repealed by a new government. Um, You know, Sweden had already a great framework for what gender equality would look like in their country, so they kind of had a leg up. But then they were still selling arms to Saudi Arabia. So it's like, you know, what were they, how was it influencing their their hard feminist foreign or their hard foreign policy decisions? You know, um, Colombia, who just announced in the past year, was the first, first to explicitly say that peace is part of their feminist foreign policy and a goal of it. I think that's been another tension. Feminists were like, you're just putting women into the military and the security sector, not changing it. And Colombia has come out and really raised the bar to talk about how pacifism is important for that. So it's probably, there's probably as many different versions as um, there are that countries that have it, I think 15 or 16 now. Many of them in the beginning used the Swedish model as the uh, one that they all built off, but now it's becoming, it's much more different. People who don't have that that gender equality framework that Sweden had are are doing their own thing. So it's, it's great and exciting. And you mentioned that in Sweden, they've actually repealed now their feminist foreign policy. What has the reception been like in some of these other countries? Well, I mean, they just are like, well, we're plowing ahead. Sweden really laid out the framework. And so we're just going to keep going down that path. Thanks for doing that. And Sweden, the government said, we're not doing away with a lot of the work. We just don't want to call it feminist because it's kind of inflammatory. So it it will be interesting to see. Also, there are three or four countries who have adopted feminist foreign policy that have elections in the next year or two. And so it will be interesting to see if those, if they keep the government coalition, if they continue on this path, or if um, when they take over, if there's a change in government, if they repeal it. Um, so we'll see if it's trend or movement. <laughs> And I'm wondering, in your opinion, having done this research, is there sort of a gold standard you'd look to? Or are there certain practices from these different governments that you'd really hold up as something that others should aspire to? Well, I think I do not think that it has been reached yet. um, But I do think a gold standard that would both show moving towards gender equality and acting in a feminist way is greater transparency. 
Um, for instance, the Biden administration set up a gender policy council, the first ever White House gender policy council. Excellent. Um, they convened the heads of all the agencies to create gender uh, plans. We've never seen them in civil society. And so they got right there. And yet, you know, the whole working with civil society, being transparent about these actions, it's very hard to judge. Sweden, although they did many things, the only monitoring and evaluation came from Sweden. They didn't allow outside evaluators to come in. And so understanding that from the community, from the outside, we both want the movement but the process matters too. And that I think would be the gold standard is actually having those values, um, enunciating those values and then living by them is like the hardest part. Definitely. <laughs> um, I'd like to turn out to talk a little bit more about the United States um, because I think one of the really important contributions of a book like this is to, as you said, take feminist foreign policy out of the theoretical world and really think about what it looks like in practice. And certainly you and Stephanie are well suited to talk about this because you've worked both inside and outside the U.S. government for so many years. Um, so I'd love to hear... Well, let's break this down into a few different sections, because you, this is a significant portion of this book, is looking at the United States and what feminist foreign policy could or should look like in a U.S. context. So to start with, can you talk about just how these international debates around feminist foreign policy have influenced discussions in the United States? Well, I definitely think that many members of civil society in the United States are part of those international conversations. You know, it didn't start in the U.S. and it's definitely not going to end in the U.S. And so we have spent a lot of time um, talking to those countries that have implemented it, as well as countries um, from the global south that have not been engaged in the conversation and are coming at it from a different place. I think a lot of people, you know, NATO and other countries were just shocked by the Ukraine invasion. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're at war. And many other countries have never stopped being at war since the end of World War II. And so they're thinking, you know, we're not building off anyone's framework, but we have the chance to create something new. And so bringing those voices together, I think, has been really important. And quite frankly, us in the U.S. have been doing a lot of the learning, not a lot of the teaching. We actually want to unlearn a lot of what the U.S. military and others have been exporting to think differently about how our foreign policy works. So I think that's an important point is that um, U.S. coalition, we are learning how to do it better. We just have to do it differently just because of the scope and size of, of the budget and the numbers of people that we're, we're working with. Absolutely. And let's talk about what that looks like um, in sort of, as we like to say, diplomacy, defense and development, the different Ds of American foreign policy. Um, and let's start with development because you worked for on gender equality for USAID for many years. What would feminist foreign policy look like in, in USAID if we were to do it right? Well, I mean, I like to start with development because that's where I came from. But unfortunately, a lot of the feminist foreign policy is just being sidelined into development, right? Those donor countries, when they say feminist foreign policy, they just mean better development programs. So I love it. And USAID, we've been doing a great job, you know, for the past couple decades implementing it. Um, I think one thing is that there has to be new funding. There has to be actual funding, not just attributions for these programs. Uh, for a long time, we said, oh, we can do gender analysis and we can integrate gender and it won't cost anything extra. Well, that's not true. If you're doing it right, it actually costs funds. And so actually the president's budget has to reflect his commitment to it and Congress has to support it. 
Um, Second of all, we need to increase the number of gender experts across the government. You know, it's not an HR position. It's actually a program and policy position. So not just in USAID, but the Department of Homeland Security and the Labor Department and trade. You know, we can think about gender experts really helping influence policy there. And then everyone in the government that doesn't have gender in their title needs to have a baseline of this. I mean, the great news is that young people coming out of college and grad school already are doing intersectional thinking. They're thinking about women. They're thinking about race. They're thinking about um, religion, you know, ethnicity, education level, all these things, and the intersection between those two. Um, And so I think the young people coming up are pushing, but there's this resistance at the top and people actually literally don't understand what we say when we need a gender analysis. And so people who don't have gender need to actually be open to thinking about about what this means. So that would be, I mean, that's very development heavy, but, you know, I have to give kudos, you know, Senator Clinton was doing feminist foreign policy before it was called feminist foreign policy. She was integrating gender into all of her briefings. Um, They knew that it was expected from the top. Whenever she traveled abroad, she included women and members of civil society in her schedule, whether in the meetings with the government or separately. So she was really thinking about the impacts of U.S. feminist, U.S. foreign policy with that gender lens before it was done. And I'm not saying the secretaries of state that we've had since then haven't done it, but it hasn't been as upfront and as clear to both the rest of the world and everyone else who works at the State Department, the importance of that. And then in the Defense Department, in a way, they have been on the forefront of implementing um, the Women, Peace and Security agenda um, through our national action plans. Because God bless them, when President Obama said we're doing a national action plan, a NAP, and here it is, that were their orders. And so they implemented it, right? Like the political wins do not affect the Defense Department as much as they might the other two. And so on the Women, Peace and Security agenda, they have so much more staff and they actually have funding more than you might think. We have the WPS Act, um, which furthered that, which was bipartisan support um, under President Trump. And so that has continued. But the difference is, is they're stuck in their little silo. And so they are not part of the discussion. I, I just have to say, like, the worst example is Afghanistan. If we, our own government, If the State Department had said we are not meeting with the Taliban unless women are present in that, which was our own law that we did not follow, we would have had perhaps different discussions. If our own Defense Department had really done a gender analysis of what would happen when our troops pulled out and talked to a lot of people, not just the the, uh, Afghan government, who, of course were out of touch anyway with their people. But if they had broadened their research, they would have known exactly what would have happened. I can't say that they would have done anything differently. I pray to God that they would have done something differently. But if they had just done what our own, um, what we were leading up to, that's a perfect foreign policy decision that was made in a gender blind sort of way. And everything from the special visas to obviously the way women and girls have been treated since the fall of Afghanistan is a perfect example of what happens when you don't take all of society into account. Definitely. And definitely an example of why feminist foreign policy is something to think about. Yes. Um, I am interested in the blue sky ideas that are coming out of these coalitions. 
separate from sort of what this looks like in practice, what are some of the more feminist, more theoretical actors thinking about what American feminist foreign policy might look like? Well, I mean, one of the biggest things is resizing. Like, why do we keep getting more nuclear weapons? Why are we ratcheting this up now? Why, even when the Defense Department says we have to right-size this, do we continue to spend hundreds more times on the Defense Department and really starve the diplomacy and the development world? We've really carved out where there are so many more contractors than actual U.S. government staff that are there for decades. So the spending has to change. And we have to think that what makes people safe is different than just protecting our own territory. Right. When we go in to countries and and we are bombing them and we are um, taking away their schools and causing mass immigration, you are creating generations of people who hate the U.S. government. And so you are creating um, I'm not going to say terrorists, but definitely people who do not welcome our involvement. So I think we need to make sure that the Defense Department is is right-sized, but also it's not our knee-jerk reaction to that's how we can fix it, right? Like even the Ebola crisis, we're like, you know who we should get? The Defense Department. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? You know, but we had we had taken away the capability of the of USAID to build those hospitals where we really just, and we had these huge machines and men over here who were like, bring them in. So it's just, if, if you actually had them more of equal size, then you would use diplomats more. Because those would be the ones who were just as qualified as as the, the generals and things like that. So the blue sky is really changing the way um, the way our government is balanced. The other thing is, if we're truly integrating gender into our work, the president gets a daily briefing every day, first thing in the morning. Gender would be integrated into that. Our intelligence service would be collecting. It's not just the, the development programs that need to be collecting gender data, but if our security sector, our intelligence brought in this every day to the president, the president and the senior staff would be thinking every day about this broader lens of what it is. And so if we got into those sorts of, um, uh, I mean, it's weird because I'm still working in the processes that exist, but we, we have to, we can't just blow it up and start the government anew. Um, so the other thing is that I, I think we've got with this government a lot of the right rhetoric, but they really need to follow on because it is a long-term process. And so building structures, new structures, bringing down other structures that haven't worked to really figure out how to integrate gender um, equality into the day-to-day process of the government. So given sort of this extremely optimistic and then these extremely pragmatic um, poles of the discussion, what would your top line recommendations be for the Biden administration? Like if there's three things that they could be doing now, what would they be? I mean, the, the main thing is that I want their actions to match their rhetoric. The White House Gender Policy Council is great. And they do a lot of work, but they are so underfunded and understaffed. I know of at least one person who's triple had it, right? It's hard to be the gender um, advisor for the White House and the National Security Council and, you know, the State Department and all these others. So if they really cared about it, I think often we'd said, if this is your policy, look at the budget. And if the budget doesn't match 
what your policy is, then that's not really your policy. And so one thing I would do is just if you're implementing gender analysis at the foreign level and the domestic level, fund it equally, staff it, do what you say and and really raise these policies up. And I think that's the main problem that we've had is that there hasn't been the funding or the follow through um, to match uh, some of the announcements that have been put forth. Um, I want people to talk about gender that are not women and don't have gender in their title. I don't want, you know, Secretary of State Blinken doesn't have to give a whole speech on gender equality. He doesn't just have to speak about this on, you know, International Women's Day in March. Like, I just want him to throw a paragraph in in every single speech. When he's talking about Iran, when he's talking about the work that we're doing in the South Pacific, when he's talking about Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine, there has never been a war that has been more gendered than this. The way Russia talks about it, the the gender... um, Differences between how the men and women in Ukraine have had to be divided because of the uh, the fighting. I mean, there's just so many aspects to that. And yet so many of our uh, leaders are not talking about it in that way. And so, um, you know, if the president was talking about it more, if if just leaders across the government integrated and showed that they were thinking about gender at times that you would think, oh, there is a gender angle to that, because, as you know, there is a gender angle to almost every uh, issue that we're dealing with, from climate change to food insecurity to immigration. And so I would really love to see it reflected in those in those things. So we're almost a decade on from the original feminist foreign policy in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Do you think we've come far enough? Do you think this is a trend? What do you think the future of feminist foreign policy looks like in the next 10 years? Well, I'm an optimist. So I believe that it is just starting to get going. I mean, Sweden, Norway, France, like it was a slow roll at the beginning. And there's been almost, it's almost doubled just in the past three years. So these other countries have joined on. So I think it's gaining momentum. Um, I think, you know, we worried a lot in the beginning about like, oh, should we call it feminist foreign policy? Is feminist throwing people off? Now we're like, who cares? That's what it's been named. And also, if you are being bold, then it is feminist, right? You're not, if you're trying to water it down, then you're already <laughs> capping yourself because you're, you're not thinking big enough. Um, so I think it is just getting going. I think it will continue to not have one definition. I think as other governments and, and other civil society organizations move towards it, it will continue to be this undefined big mess. But that's okay, right? We don't want, I think, more and more we found that there is no one size fits all. And so people have to implement it coming from where they are. Um, and But I do think we're just at the beginning of this movement and, and that we will continue to move on. And I am also advocating that people who worked on 1325, the WPS community, continue their work, right? Because we have to work in different ways and, and with different people in order to really make the, the changes that we want to make. Well, I certainly hope you're right. That is a very optimistic <laughs> take, but one that I, I share. Um, so to finish, let's just go back to the this specific book. I'd love to know what your hope is for this um, and who you wrote it for. Well, we really wrote it for people who don't think about it every day. Um, I do, and I often think that um, the way Stephanie and I phrase it is that we're starting on third base. We already assume they've read the reports and they already read all the studies and everything. And we're like, oh, they don't know what we're talking about. So this book is really just um, 
it it's called a textbook, but we really tried to make it so that, you know, my daughter who's in college or the person who doesn't think about even foreign policy every day, if they just think about like, what is this thing that's been bantied about, that they could read it. So hopefully for academics who dig deep into one specific topic, it gives them a broader view. Obviously, students who are just being introduced to international relations theory, activists who are on the kind of cusp of feminist foreign policy and want to know where the hell it came from. And then, as I said before, those who kind of work in the field of security and foreign policy who don't have gender in their title, who may just want to, uh, we always joke it's a beach read, that they want to, you know, (laughs) when they're on an airplane or something, get a good groundwork, a good framework of where we are now, because I have to tell you, it's already out of date because countries have declared feminist foreign policy since it was published, but it's a baseline and things will continue to change and move forward. But this gives a good kind of how, how did we get here and, and a jumping off point for how it's moving forward. Wonderful. Well, I've already um, talked to some of my own students about it because I think it is a really good introduction and I hope that many other folks do the same. Um, Susan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really been a pleasure to hear more about this uh, book. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Rebecca Turkington, and you've been listening to the New Books Network, where we have discussed uh, feminist foreign policy in theory and in practice, an introduction by Susan Markham and Stephanie Foster out just a month ago by Rutledge. Thanks very much.